Welcome to Always Andersonville, the podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Sarah. Today, we are joined by Brenda Webb, Executive Director of Chicago Filmmakers. Chicago Filmmakers is a nonprofit media arts organization that fosters the creation, appreciation, and understanding of film and video as media for artistic and personal expression. In 2018, Chicago Filmmakers moved from its second floor home in Andersonville to 5720 North Ridge Avenue, a historic 1920s firehouse they fully renovated with classrooms, a screening room, office space, and projection facilities. Welcome, Brenda. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? Well, welcome. Welcome to the firehouse, uh, and thank you for talking to me. Well, let's start with, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Where are you from and how did you land in Chicago? Well, I'm actually originally from Indianapolis, um, and I came here to go to film school. Um, When I was in Indiana University, I was studying psychology. And at the end of my degree, sort of uh, took a film class that really inspired me and completely sort of threw out the whole psychology thing (laughs) and decided to... Uh, pursue a film. So I came to Chicago to go to Columbia College, uh, studied filmmaking there, was there a couple of years and actually got hired by a uh, post-production editing house. Uh, So I didn't actually finish my film degree. I went into film editing and then um, got involved with Chicago Filmmakers because my roommate at the time was one of the founders and they were looking for a a programmer, somebody to start their classes and uh, program films. So that's how I got involved with Chicago Filmmakers. That's a great story. And my next question was, how did you become interested in film, which you just explained? But had that been something that you had always been interested in? Or it sounds like there was a bit of an element of surprise there. No, actually, I was not. I did not grow up as a film buff. I really was not that interested in Hollywood films. But what changed is seeing European art films. And as a psychology student, it really appealed to me because the the films I was seeing in this aesthetics class um, really dealt much more with complex psychology of characters and stories. So it was really when I was introduced to Ingmar Bergman and Antonioni and those kinds of films that I saw a completely different side of filmmaking than I had ever been exposed to before. And so it really uh, piqued my interest. And in some ways I felt... Um, I mean, as a psychology student, you spend a lot of time studying rats and mazes and things like that, which can actually sort of feel you, make you feel pretty detached from the human experience, oddly enough. Um, so through these films and these complex stories, it really kind of um, it just, I felt like I almost was learning more about human psychology through film than I was through uh, traditional uh, studies in psychology. So um, yeah, so it just intrigued me and fascinated me and I wanted to get, sort of get more involved. So Chicago Filmmakers has been around since 1973. Can you tell us about its history? Sure. Um, Chicago Filmmakers was started in this whole kind of um, artist-run space movement in Chicago and, of, of course, in other cities around the, around the country. But it was a really exciting time. Um, and I think people now probably can't imagine that there was a time where there weren't spaces run by artists, but there was. And so... Um, Chicago filmmakers' roots were really in the art gallery scene. So at the beginning, we were called Film Group at Name Gallery. So it was actually a film program uh, under the auspices of Name Gallery, which was uh, a gallery that ran many years after. But we split from them in, uh, I think it was 1976, and uh, got our own space and our own identity. But it really was kind of part of this heyday of the arts arts community where there was, um, we were on Hubbard Street, State and Hubbard Street, 
And they used to actually close off the first Friday of every month. They used to close off Hubbard Street. And this was before all the street fairs that we're all familiar with now. Again, there was actually a time where there were not street fairs in Chicago. Harold Washington really introduced that when he was mayor. But before that, it was kind of an anomaly for there to be a street closed down. And so people would gallery hop um, on Hubbard Street and they would uh, you know, see performance art and then they would come and see experimental films at Chicago filmmakers. So, our roots are really in the kind of arts community, so we started out as an experimental film screening space. So it was pretty much um, experimental film shown on Saturday evenings in Name Gallery. And then as I say, when we, we moved out from uh, and separated from Name Gallery and incorporated as Chicago filmmakers, the organization continued then and today to be still very, very um, rooted in the experimental film uh, aesthetic, so we show a lot of experimental films in our screening program, but we also then started developing our educational program and our filmmaker services and other aspects of the organization. And you mentioned um, some previous locations, and we'll get more into your newest and current home, but what has Chicago filmmakers garnered from being rooted in different neighborhoods in Chicago since its inception? You know, that's a good question because really where you are located really does have a huge impact on, on the organization and, uh, and there's just kind of different flavors and characters. Certainly again, back in the 70s when we were in, on Hubbard Street, we were part of the fine arts community, the kind of visual arts community. So um, I, I, a lot of the people, our audiences were also artists and painters and poets and, and, uh, and such. Um, then when we moved um, to the Belmont area, um, uh, and, and had a much larger space, a much more formal theater. I think we started to be, you know, expand our programming um, to show a wider range of films. And so kind of, I think, then sort of expanded our audience too and our location at that point was actually one of the best locations we had in terms of attracting audiences. We were a few blocks away, uh, blocks away from the L. So um, at that time we also started because we had such a large space and I think one thing that happens when you are renting a large space is you have to figure out ways to supplement your income. I and mean, we were showing films largely on the weekends and so this theater, 200 seat theater, was sitting dormant um, other nights so we started getting involved in renting our space out to theater companies. So when we were on Belmont, uh, Looking Glass Theater Company was a regular um, uh, theater company that produced in our space. Um, so when we moved from Belmont, then we went over to Wicker Park. So we were in what is now the Chopin Theater and continued to work with theater companies. So those two spaces, there, there was sort of a lot of kind of collaboration and work um, with the theater community. Um, and then when we moved to Andersonville, um, the move to Andersonville really in many ways was kind of fleeing the code problems we had because when you are in a sort of a, a, a commercial space and um, you're doing what we do and, and the laws are very antiquated when it comes to film. Um, I was actually just talking to some firemen who were in our, our uh, space the other day and we were talking about fire codes and even though film has not been flammable, like 60 millimeter, 35 millimeter film has not been flammable for years and years and years, the uh, fire codes were still based on the old nitrate films that would just practically explode if you just looked at it. So we always had these problems with fire code violations that we couldn't really afford to remedy. So in many ways, our, our sort of transition from space to space had something to do with that. Um, and so, you know, that coupled with gentrification, I mean, it's, you know, one of the reasons that we own our own space now and that was such, such a, a drive for me is being in an organization where you really are 
you know, paying a lot of money rent. And I thought, well, this could be a mortgage. Like, why are we paying all this rent for a mortgage? And also knowing that you don't really have the kind of permanence and control over your space that you need, especially when you have unique space, space needs and you need to, you know, change it. Um, I mean, when we were looking at code violations, we were also looking at how much money it would cost to remedy those. And these are putting money, it's, this is putting money into a space that you don't really own. And therefore, um, you know, you could put $100,000 into a space and, you know, two years later have to leave it. So, so that was always a predicament and, and why, because we were in State and Hubbard and that was, that was sort of such a, I became really aware then of the whole process of gentrification and the degree to which artists develop spaces and develop communities that then become desirable for people who have money, who can now now move into those neighborhoods and then the arts organizations and artists get displaced. So it was really, honestly, back in the 70s that I really started thinking about, we really have to own our own space. It just took me a super long time <laughs> to get there, but it was always kind of something I was aware of because artists do are drivers of economic development and yet they don't always reap the benefits of that of that kind of economic activity. Well, that's such a fascinating and rich history, and it sounds like it's it's both unique to Chicago filmmakers, but also universal to arts organizations in Chicago. Um, and I'm curious, how has Chicago filmmakers contributed to the film and art scene in Chicago? And then conversely, how has Chicago and its film culture here shaped Chicago filmmakers over the years? I think in terms of the, the contribution we've made to the, the, the film community, um, I mean, it's really in a number of ways. We screen films, obviously, so we show films, and um, not just experimental films, documentaries, short films, all kinds of, of films, and we do love to show Chicago area films. We don't exclusively show films by Chicago filmmakers, but that certainly is a preference of ours. And um, considering that you know we're showing shorts and documentaries, um, and experimental films, in some cases, this is one of the very few places where that work will ever be shown in the city. Obviously, these are not the kind of films that get shown in the commercial marketplace. Um, but we also support the creation of new work. So uh, we have, since 2012, we've been giving out $100,000 in grants each year through the Vocal Fund uh, for the production of digital videos. Um, and that's been very exciting because each year about eight to nine artists uh, receive grants of up to $20,000 each. And so uh, a lot of the work that we've funded um, local, and this is restricted to local filmmakers, a lot of the work we've been funding is, is a, um, a web series. And I would say one of the most exciting developments in the last couple of years has been the visibility and the discovery of artists through web series. So, We've uh, funded a number of, of these series that have, uh, one of them, um, the filmmaker has just gone on to be offered a development deal from HBO, two other web series that we uh, help fund. Um, I just heard we're sort of nominated for a streaming series on Netflix. So um, so we, we really feel that um, through our funding that we're able to sort of make Chicago a, a good place to stay. I mean, you know, traditionally one of the problems in the film community has been that People, we have these wonderful film schools, and, and also Chicago Filmmakers, by the way, also teaches filmmaking. So the other way that we kind of contribute to the community is by teaching uh, and creating new filmmakers and giving them the skills that they need to create new work. But one of the uh, traditional problems we've had in the kind of second city is that 
filmmakers often learn filmmaking here, get their experience working here, and then go off to the coast to New York or LA to get work. And what's been really exciting in the Chicago scene is that a lot of that has been turned around, both in terms of the visibility of film made documentary filmmakers, such as the people Kartemquin films, but also the production of TV that's going on now sort of allows people to get employment as well. So, I mean, I think in, in terms of what Chicago has done for us in terms of, um, and the kind of films, I mean, it's always sort of hard to put your finger on like what are Chicago films, but certainly um, uh, I think, especially when it comes to documentary, you know, the whole cinema verite movement and this kind of sense of, of you know, being, um, ca capturing this sort of, the, the, the roughness of, of Chicago and the community and sort of uh, all the stories that don't get told in the mainstream, I think is one thing that, um, that uh, is not unique to Chicago, but special about Chicago. Uh, so I think we have a really, not just Kartemquin, but, but other organizations too, we have a really wonderful and vibrant documentary um, film community here. And, uh, and again, you know, uh, People make a, coming out of film school are making a lot of shorts. There are shorts film festivals in town. I mean, this city must have more film festivals than just about any other city, and maybe even over LA. I mean, there's just so much film viewing and film activity and film production going on here these days. Well, Brenda, in 2013, Chicago filmmakers purchased a vacant firehouse on Ridge Avenue, which we're sitting in right now, uh, from the city of Chicago. Your new space boasts a large screening space with surround sound offices, two classrooms, and a projection room. What drew Chicago filmmakers to the Ridge Firehouse, and how will the new space allow Chicago filmmakers to grow? Well, you know, Chicago, I, I think I sort of already mentioned that, that we'd always had our eye on owning our own space, and it was obvious to me that the only way we'd ever be able to afford to own our own space was if we either found a space to purchase that met our needs exactly, which is highly unlikely, or if we were able to secure a space that cost very little or next to nothing, but could put money into renovation. It seemed like that was the only option for us if we ever wanted to own our building. So. Um, it started to occur to me, and, and I heard about some theater companies who had gotten city buildings, so it started to occur to me, gee, maybe we can get one of those buildings too. Um, so we kind of uh, started looking around. Um, I had seen this building probably more like in 2011 or 2012. Um, we had contacted our alderman's office, and they had given us a tour of this building because it had been vacant since, I think, around 2008 uh, when the fire department exited. So it had kind of been sitting here vacant and wasn't heated. And, it was in pretty bad shape, uh, cosmetically, not, not fundamentally. I mean, it was, it's really kind of a solid building. But um, I remember looking down in the basement and seeing water almost to the top of the stairs and thinking like, oh, yep, this building, there's something seriously wrong with this building. This will never work. And then um, in 2013, um, a former board member who knew that we had been looking at firehouses, and the reason, by the way, that we were looking at fire, I was looking at firehouses and churches because of the kind of physical structure you need to show films. You need an open span space, no, no beam, vertical beams and things like that. So um, a former board member told me, oh, you know, there's that firehouse that we visited, they're, um, they're taking proposals. So the city had issued a, a request for proposals to purchase the firehouse, this particular firehouse. And so um, I just found out about it actually a couple of days before the, the, it was due. But we happened to be working with some architects um, on a potential rental space. So I had a couple of architects that I was already in communication with, and um, I asked them, 
there's this opportunity, can you do some drawings? And so within two days, it was like the fastest grant proposal I'd ever written in my whole entire life. <laughs> I was just like sitting at the computer, just sort of like, just channeling every idea, argument that I could think of for why we, we should have this firehouse. And, um, and so we, we were among um, a handful of organizations that submitted proposals to the city. So then we went through a final process where uh, we were uh, two organizations, us and another organization, where we were then inter interviewed by several people in the city and we were eventually selected. So this proposal was due in August 2013, so it was in October that they let us know that we um, were, were being awarded the building um, for $36,000. Our, our proposal, I, when, when we submitted the proposal, I decided adamantly that we would not offer a dollar, which I knew was kind of the standing <laughs> situation, but I thought, let's be competitive. Let's offer them a whole $36,000. And the only reason I came up with that amount was because in order to submit a proposal to the city, they required $36,000 earnest money. So in my mind, I just decided to say goodbye to that money and just let that be. So that's just really how that, that figure came up. So it was 2013, of course, we weren't, didn't move in until the end of 2017 because a lot of activity happened um, for the first year, just negotiating the actual terms of the agreement with the city because we, this isn't a normal real estate transaction when you buy a city from the, a building from the city like this, um, it entail, especially at a huge landmark down, I mean, at a fraction of its true value. Um, the city wants to make sure that you're not buying it to flip the building or that you'll use it for its intended purpose So you have to sign a redevelopment agreement that you won't sell it for 10 years and other stipulations which are completely understandable and, and fine with uh, us We certainly never intended to buy the building and then leave so um, that took quite a while then getting architects plans and <clears throat> and bids and then going back to the drawing board because it was too expensive and getting more architects plans and bids. So that took a couple of years. Um, and then we actually closed on the sale of the building, the sale of the building um, at the end of February 2016 and our contract stipulated that we had to actually start construction the next business day after closing. So that meant pretty much we couldn't close on the purchase of the building until we had pulled permits and we were ready to to go into construction, which required a big leap of faith on our part because we had expended all this money on architect's fees without any assurance that we'd be able to buy the building. So, um, so anyhow, it all worked out well, but it was a little scary. <laughs> and how can folks see or tour the space if they're interested? You also have a venue rental program, correct? Um, we certainly, uh, our people are welcome to visit. Um, we're open 10.30 to 6.30. Um, uh, stop on in, ring the doorbell. Um, more favorable for us, though, is to come to a screening <laughs> or take a class. Um, in terms of renting our space, our, we really only rent our space to filmmakers to show their own work, so we keep our rentals to completely mission-based work. We're not available for weddings or outside uses at all. And you talked about this for yourself and for Chicago filmmakers, but many nonprofits and arts organizations dream of owning their own space. What have you learned from this endeavor? And um, if there's one thing that you could maybe pass along to another organization dreaming up a similar project, what would that thing be? Well, certainly um, when you're a not-for-profit arts administrator, you're getting outside of your comfort zone when you are working on a construction project. I knew nothing about construction before this, so I would say 
my recommendation to somebody taking on a, buying a building and restoring a building would be the same advice I'd give to a filmmaker going into production, which is do your pre-production because um, as do as much thinking, research, um, and planning as you can before you undertake it um, because there's so many details that go into a construction project and the more that you ask questions at the beginning and the more that you know about what's involved, the better um, because otherwise there are lots and lots of surprises all along the way when it comes to construction. Um, change orders are sort of the thing to avoid. <laughs> For 32 years, you have organized Reeling, the Chicago LGBTQ International Film Festival, and the second oldest of its kind in the world. Can you describe Reeling's mission and what were a few highlights from the 2018 festival? Yeah, so, so uh, Reeling was started in 1981. I'm actually the founder of the festival as well. And really, honestly, the, the festival started, um, and, and this is pre-computers and you know when you had limited ability to research. So honestly, when I came up with the idea, I didn't even know if there was an LGBT film festival in existence. But really, it was started um, to, to really showcase work by LGBT artists that was, were not being seen in the mainstream. Um, in the first days of our festival, there really were almost no American films to show except for experimental films and documentaries. This was pre-queer you know, um, cinema movement in the US. Um, so in the first few years of our festival, it was mainly experimental films and European um, feature films. But really, the, the, sort of, the incubation of the festival came from an article I read in an, a film journal, an experimental film journal. And it really, it talked about, um, is there a gay sensibility in film? It kind of posed that question. And all the filmmakers that were cited in this article, all the LGBT filmmakers that were discussed in this article are all experimental filmmakers. And so as a venue for experimental film, um, showing films to a very small but dedicated audience, um, it occurred to me that um, does the LGBT community really know about these filmmakers? So these, so many of the pioneers of experimental film in the U.S. are LGBT for whatever reason. And, um, and I just thought, well, just the, does the larger community, LGBT community, even know these people exist? So really, the whole inception of the festival was really started to introduce experimental filmmakers to the LGBT community. That's kind of was the whole whole original purpose. Of course, it's taken on a, a broader community purpose. The first year that we uh, had the festival in our 90-seat screening room at State and Hubbard, um, we were overwhelmed by audiences. I mean, everything sold out. People were literally weeping to get in. And we realized that we had really tapped into a deep, deeply felt need for LGBT film representation, something that, you know, for me, was sort of a concept, but to actually feel the emotion and the impact of that was really powerful. So that first year we showed those films, um, we decided to continue it as an annual event. Are there any LGBTQ filmmakers here in Chicago that people should check out or follow? Yes, of course. <laughs> um, Kai Dickens is a wonderful uh, documentary filmmaker. Sharon Zurich, who is also on our board, has uh, ed editor of Hannah Free, 
she's a, a lesbian filmmaker. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we really have a, a really solid community here. Um, Full Spectrum Features and Open TV um, are both involved in producing um, LGBT work. Um, our festival that just concluded in September, um, our opening night film was by Lisa Cordelione, who is a, she just moved to LA, unfortunately, but she is a, but she shot this film in Chicago. She's from Chicago. She shot her feature film in Chicago, so we were thrilled to be able to open uh, the Reeling Film Festival this year with Freelancers Anonymous. It was a wonderful screwball comedy uh, directed by her and starring a largely Chicago cast and crew. Chicago Filmmakers offers a plethora of programming for youth. My son took a filmmakers class at summer camp a few years back. So, um, and that ranges from the summer camp to stop motion and clay animation classes to the LGBTQ Youth Media Project. Talk to us about the programs and classes you have available and why they are so valuable. So our classes really range in almost every aspect of uh, digital filmmaking from screenwriting through directing and lighting and sound and editing the whole gamut. Um, what our, and for youth and adults and in some cases both in the same classroom. I mean actually uh, we've had our summer camp program since uh, 2005 when my own daughter was 10 and I developed the program because I couldn't find something for her. Um, and as you say, we have now youth classes on the weekends as well. Um, but you know, what we're really trying to do is provide an affordable opportunity to learn filmmaking and really to kind of democratize the media and make people understand that um, filmmaking is accessible to all and whether you want to be a filmmaker, you know, in quotes, or whether you just want to learn how to, um, you know, edit your home movies or whatever, that it's accessible to anybody. And so our classes are taught by the same people who are teaching at colleges and universities in town, but of course, obviously, in a community-based setting like this, you're paying a whole lot less. <laughs> We're not an accredited institution, but we're sort of very much a hands-on uh, facility to teach people how to how to make films. And there are certainly some uh, filmmakers who, um, especially some documentary filmmakers locally, we did a, a screening uh, program a couple of years ago with five documentary filmmakers who um, whose work we fiscally sponsored, but a couple of them had actually gotten their film education just at Chicago Filmmakers and then went on to make award-winning documentary work. So you don't necessarily have to be a full-time film student to, to get film education. It's kind of, we get you on your way, get you to, to you know, be comfortable working with film and then um, the sky's the limit. So I feel we need to ask, what is your favorite movie? Okay, well, you will not have ever heard of it. <laughs> My favorite movie is Serene Velocity by Ernie Gare. It's, it's a, basically a camera filming a hallway. But it, it's, it's amazing. Things happen, visual things happen that are not necessarily there. So I'm a, I'm a, a it's really experimental film that really got, pulled my heartstrings and maybe get involved in, in, in this, this job at this organization. So, so that would be my favorite film. So we actually had a question from our producer, Andy. What, what do you project here? What kind of format of film do you show? Well, we show 16 millimeter film and we show digital cinema. Uh, we have actually have DCP. And um, for those of you who, who know what that is, um, it's a very state of the art expensive uh, way of showing films. However, um, through the uh, contribution of James Bond, who we gave his, we gave James, 
bummed. We gave him his first projection job <laughs> when he was like 18 or something like that. And so he uh, now is sort of this renowned projection guru who flies all over the place and sets up these very complex uh, projection systems. And he set up our projection system as a gift to us and we are able to have the kind of equipment we would otherwise not have been able to afford through his generosity. So happy to give a shout out to James Bond for his contribution uh, to Chicago filmmakers. So now we've reached the part of our interview when we ask, which Andersonville business would you like to work at for a day and why? Well, women and ch children first books, I think. Just because it's such a wonderful uh, business. It's been around forever. I used to go to it when it was in Lincoln Park. Um, and uh, the owners used to have their little baby and their dog. And it just, to me, women and children first really kind of typifies um, the, the local kind of, you know, sort of community related. I mean, they have, it's not just a retail store, but it's also part of the community and they have events. And so I, I think that um, that would be an organization other than my own that I would be proud to work for. Well, thank you so much, Brenda, for speaking with us today. And thank you for listening to Always Andersonville, the podcast. For more information about Chicago Filmmakers, please visit chicagofilmmakers.org. Show notes on today's episode can be found at andersonville.org. Always Andersonville, the podcast, is engineered and edited by Andy Miles in Studio C at Transistor, a gallery, shop, performance, recording, and teaching space located at 5224 North Clark Street. Have your own podcast idea? The studio is available to rent. Please call 872 208 5877 or stop by the store for details.